Hello listeners and welcome to the Africa to podcast where we look to celebrate African history, people and culture by telling our story. As always, our hope is that it fills you with enough curiosity to go and do your own deeper research. Karibuni to any new listeners to the Afriwetu world. We invite you to check out previous Afriwetu episodes which can be found on this podcast platform. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we're headed to the south of our continent to meet the great Ndebele Kingdom. A shout out to my South Africans out there. Afriwetu is here in your lands. I do apologize in advance for the mispronunciation of words that will most definitely happen. Before we begin, please remember to visit us on our socials. Our handle is at Afriwetu across all platforms where we post interesting facts, stories, updates and links for further study for all you lovely people. And please remember to tell your friends and families about us. But for now, just sit back and enjoy the journey. So before we even begin this foray into the great Ndebele kingdom, we need to be very clear on which Ndebele we're talking about. Now, for those of you Afriwatu who didn't know, there's not one singular Ndebele culture. To start, let's start and get the meaning of the term Ndebele. So the translations I've seen are people protected by tall cowhide shields or those people who are out of sight behind the tall war shields. Our Ndebele people, please, please, please share your versions with us here at Afriwetu so we can share it with the Afriwatu. So the genesis of the Ndebele goes a little something like this. Way back to Mafana, the first recorded chief. On his death, his son, Mlanga, became the leader. Mlanga's son Musi then decided to forge his own path and in the early 17th century he traveled from what is KwaZulu-Natal to Huateng and settled there. He had two sons, Manala and Zunzunda, I'm sure I've mispronounced that, who were contenders as his successors. There was a fight. Manala won and remained to take over his father's chiefdom. His brother, Zunzunda, left to set up his own kingdom to the east, which is in modern-day Kwasimkulu. Out of this, we then have the three main Nebele groups. You have the southern Nebele from South Africa, who claim Nzunza as their ancestor and are actually closer culturally to the Nguni, and their Isin Nebele language is closely related to Zulu. You have the northern Nebele, who are mainly the Balanga, and they are also South African and identified as those from the Limpopo province and having a culture and language that has been influenced by the Soto. You then have the Ndembele of Zimbabwe, who are the Ndembele this episode is centered on, the descendants of Mzilikazi of the Nguni who originated from the Zulu kingdom during Shaka's reign. Their language is also a Sindembele, a Nguni derivative. So now that we have that out of the way, let's get back into it by, yep, getting your maps out. Yeah. 
The Ndembele Kingdom, at its height, was located in the area between the Limpopo and the Zambezi rivers to the north and the south. And then to the west, it spread from the Madage to the east, the Shushangwe lands. So when you come to the origin story, so we've already heard that the Ndembele, our Ndembele today, originated from Shaka's Zulu kingdom, right? Now, when doing the research for this, there were two main conflicting views as to the genesis of how they broke away. And I will share both versions here. Afriwetu would really love to hear from the Ndembele to send their thoughts to us, to what it is they subscribe to. Personally, I believe that the second version is the truer account, but that's just me. So both versions center around the relationship between Mzilikazi and the founder who was born in circa AD 1790 in modern-day South Africa with Shaka. The first version is that Mzilikazi fell out with Shaka after refusing to surrender a cattle bounty of circa 200 um, from a raid. He and his people, the Nimbele, then fled to establish their own independent kingdom. They had to leave as staying would incur the wrath of Shaka and they were well aware of his capabilities and zero tolerance for those who were not loyal. The second version is that the Ndembele didn't flee, they weren't chased away, nor did they run or cower or hide because of being forced to. In fact, it is said that they left with their heads held high. The issue of the bounty and the dispute is not disputed, but the way in which they broke away very much is. To many Ndembele, they say they left of their own accord and in defiance. And then it's from here that the differences end and then the rest of the origin story pretty much converges. There were hundreds of the Nobele people, majority of whom were military men who left their homes and headed north to conquer new lands, confident in their success. After all, they were one of the best military forces in the region. In fact, Mzilikazi was known as Shaka's best military general. The Ndembele Kingdom was an amalgamation of all the different civilizations they conquered along the way, including the Soto, the Swana, the Shona, and the Pedi. They then settled with Mzilikazi making Bulawayo the capital and the base, as he then went about building a kingdom. It is said that he was a larger-than-life person in character, but also very softly spoken and very cheerful. But to build what was the formidable kingdom we know of today, he was also a shrewd man, a great leader and military strategist. Now, every kingdom worth its salt needs to be sustainable and basically make money. So let's jump into the next section and briefly touch on the trade and economy of the Ndebele. The main mode of trade and travel was through the rivers, the waterways. Water transport from Ndebele to the coasts east and west. This tended to be the more preferred mode and was more lucrative and faster when you compared it to the others. Through their conquests, the Ndebele had actually become a successor state of the Shona Changamire Rosvi kingdom. Having subdued them and taking over as a dominant power in the region, they then leveraged on the Rosvi and negotiated an economic relationship. Nevertheless, there were still tensions with the Rosvi and the rest of the Shona from whom they got grain, as in the long run, it turned out that the agreements in place mainly benefited the Ndebele and not the others. So, for example, 
In the deals around the cattle with the Rosvi, the Ndembele would exchange cattle for the youth of the Rosvi and other Shona. But there was a catch. The young people were absorbed and not allowed to return back to their people. And the cattle still remained the property of the Ndembele. I mean, to be honest, that is such a raw deal. But aside from the cattle, though, who did form an important part in the Nimbele economy, you could also find them trading in ivory and beads. And in addition, there was also trade around. And because I am sure you all remember your geography and the minerals that naturally occur in this region, the trade around gold. Trade was key, and even when there were ongoing conflicts, the trade routes that went through the region between the traders and the interior at the Zambezi to the coast were always kept open. So now, in the next section, as no surprise that when it comes to the military, the Ndembele were one of the most formidable in the region. Outside of their own natural and professional abilities, they had the added advantage of being part and parcel of the very fierce and professional Zulu army. And before we take a look at just how much was influenced by the Zulu, a note about the Ndembele's own military credentials. When they left the Zulu in their travels, they faced open hostility and were thus always on their guard and ready to defend themselves as well as conquer. They absorbed new cultures with the people they conquered and to manage and maintain their dominance, they had to find ways in which to keep their culture. And this was done through discipline and the resolution of the Ndembele character. They used their military superiority to force a social cohesion of sorts. The army itself was well-structured during their travels and also once they settled into their new home. The larger army was not a standing army, but men were called upon when required. Otherwise, they went back to their homes. Knowing all this, it is still important to acknowledge the strong Nguni Zulu influence. When you look at the Zulu military structure and the Ndembeles, there are many, many, many similarities. The Zansi, the ruling elite of the Ndembele, took their cues from the Zulu family. And even when they left, carried with them systems such as the government policies and institutions, political systems, societal and cultural values. They even carried with them the famed fighting technique with the Sasegai. This was a fighting technique where people fought at close combat. In addition, they also took with them the cowherd formation and also adopted the Amabuto system, one which is created over time within their societies. Now, with the Ibuto, which is the single of the Amabuto, there are various meanings to this, and this depends on the context in which it is used. So the more general explanation was that it referred to a grouping of men, mostly, most commonly in a martial setting or organization. The Ibuto, and again, we are talking about the Ibuto because it was the core of their military system. The Ibuto also referred to a squad of the Imisi men, those who would form a part of the Ibuto regiment when called to serve from the same village or origin. 
These Imisi also referred to villages and they grew out of the Ibuto after a number of years as people drove to form their own settlements from the main Ibuto. They were not strictly speaking a military settlement, but the men were viewed as potential soldiers. The Ibuto term was also used for young men who would gather together as what can be very loosely equated to a regiment. They would do so on a temporary basis for a specific purpose in the course of a military campaign. So the army consisted of those who were called to fight and mobilize well needed, as well as professional active soldiers. The military was a source of national pride and soldiers coming not just from the Dembele but also from the Soto, the Shona and others who got the very same level of training which meant that there was a kingship with all the fellow soldiers for, and for all intents and purposes were still considered Dembele warriors. So now that we have a flavour of the military, let's look at the governance of this kingdom. So the Nkosi was at the head of all things, like all things. He had dominion over all property, the military and religion. The Nkosi would be welcomed or greeted with phrases like, Bayete wena baba, hail the father of the nation, or Bayete wena Nkosi, hail his majesty. Folk did not speak to him directly, but through courtiers. So revered was he and his position that it is said that when it came to religion, the king's own ancestors were bestowed as deities for the general public. Now, when it came to his status in the military, only the Nkosi had the powers to make any changes, big or small, to the forces. This included choosing the commanding officers, as well as deciding who gets what position in the army. He would also be involved in the selection of the banners and names for the regiments, picking not only where the regiments would be stationed, but also the type of weaponry it would use. The Ndembele called themselves Abantu Bikosi, Binkosi, the people of the king. They had their wealth and property tied up to the throne. This included cattle, land, and all old and newly acquired wealth also belonged to him to distribute as he saw fit. A classic example is that when it came to livestock, you needed his permission to even kill one. The people depended on him a lot for their livelihood. Now, despite all of this, it might look like the Nkosi could act without any checks or balances, but this actually wasn't the case. He was accountable to a court of advisors and was also beholden to the Zansi, the nobility. There were controls on the Nkosi's powers, like his decisions were tempered by the council. These were brought before them for discussion, and when a consensus was reached, that is what passed. Decisions that were brought about were things like the declaration of war or peace, for any treaties that needed to be signed, for succession issues, you know, things that were of national importance. And these discussions could take anything from days to months. Interestingly, although the council did not have members of the royal family, it did actually have the Nkosi's wives. They were involved in the advisory council and in the districts with the Induna. The council also acted as a supreme court, and so cases that required more authority were taken before them. Issues such as murder, treason, rebellions, and those types which came from the lower courts were listened to the higher courts in the provinces. In the level below the Nkosi and the council, we find his advisors who sat on two levels, the Umnumsane and the Zinduna. 
the Umnumsane had representatives from non-nobles and the nobility. They were the tier just under the Nkosi, and beneath them were the Zinunda advisors who had power over the regiments. One became an Inunda, usually after proving themselves as a good leader in their military exploits. They were usually put in charge of administrative duties and the armed forces, the Inunda Umuzi and the Inunda Yobuto, respectively. Other arm of governance were the chiefs who were the administrators of the provinces. So these chiefs came from the nobility, those who had proven themselves in military and politics. They ran the provinces as the Nkosi's reps, reporting to him, and had full control making decisions on taxation and tribute, which came from in the form of, of cattle and harvests. They also ran judicial matters. They also did the maintenance of internal security and the law, as well as any constructions of new towns in their province. So a lot of responsibility. So now that we've touched on governance, let's look at the society that they were governing. We already touched on the assumptions of not seeing the Ndembele as purely militaristic in their nature, but also acknowledging that there was definitely a strong influence of the military in their society and was the basis of their nationalism. The Ndembele were a very multi-ethnic collection of people, having assimilated those conquered and for them the military was a place to be when it came to being integrated. In fact, it was here that those who had been assimilated and absorbed found acceptance as they and their counterparts would train and fight together, forming deep bonds that superseded any caste differences. And from here, they too were able to elevate themselves in society. The military was paradoxically the most liberal arm of society in this sense. I mean, every soldier could identify themselves as a Ndembele soldier regardless of their background. When it comes to the rest of the society, the different settlements were set up by age sets who settled for life in the military towns that they founded. These towns, though based on these military foundations, would not necessarily be filled with soldiers. So we go back to the Ibuto. So still in that military vein, I just wanted to add a little bit more context for as we drill, drill down. It is from the Ibuthos that the nucleus of the state and the emergence of the Umusi Imisi, as we mentioned earlier, the settlements that became villages as they grew. They were usually centered around one family to begin with, and as a population grew, this family would, by default, constitute the leadership and the chiefs. These chiefs then had authority over the judiciary, spiritual, and political issues. Then you had the Isigara or Isigaba. These settlements focused around several villages with a central royal family that was patriarchal. The people here, although lo loyal to the Nkosi, were very attached to their local chiefs. And this bond was well understood that even the Nkosi did not try to mess with it. Then we have the Induna. We met them earlier. The nobility and the leaders in the Ndembele society who were marked by special attire, because, you know, Africans, we are very special. They were assisted by military commanders and other nobility, and they reported to the senior chiefs who had the Nkosi's ear. 
Then related to the Induna, although patriarchal, there was a special place for female nobility. Remember earlier we said the Nkosi's wives were involved in the politics? Well, they were actually placed as well in every town and village as his representatives, acting as his eyes and ears. And the most senior wife was the Inina Wumuzi, the mother of the town, to whom the Induna deferred to on decisions relating to the town. And then within the towns themselves, there were some identifiable groups of menfolk. You had the Madoda, who were decorated war veterans with their families and still served as a standing national guard for their town. They retired to farming and cattle herding. Then you had the Majaha, the professional soldiers who lived in the town's barracks, and they were the bachelors, and until they left the army or accomplished, could not marry. Then you had the young lads who herded the cattle. So if we just take a closer look at the caste system. So the three main castes were the Zansi, the Enhala, and the lowest caste. And intermarriage, certain activities, for example, even eating together, was prohibited within the classes. So if you start with the Zansi, who were the aristocracy of the land, socially, politically, and militarily, to belong to the Zansi, one had to have Nguni ancestry from both parents. And even within them, there's still a further division into the hierarchy of clans. So for example, I read that the Kumalo clan, from which the royal family belonged, was the highest of the clans within the aristocracy. Then the next level down, they these were the middle class and they were mainly from the Soto people who had been absorbed by the Nimbele and had risen in rank. This seemed to be based on the fact that they were part of the society longer and were indoctrinated and assimilated and were very loyal subjects. They held positions in middle management like emissaries, officers in the, in the army and such like. And they also were landowners and livestock. And then at the lower level, we found the non-Guni and non-Soto people, those who constituted the majority of the population. And they tended to be the laborers, military porters, as well as being the trades such as practicing medicine, artisans, blacksmiths, merchants, and so on. Now, when it came to Ndemele beliefs, it was a hybrid of the different religions from these who were absorbed, but it was very heavily on the Shona religious practices. That being said, they still retained the Nguni culture of the Nkosi being the high priest as well as having the role of rainmaker, one he played during droughts. The chiefs were also the spiritual heads and specifically spiritual heads of their clans. The Demise so the eventual downfall for Andembele kingdom from its glory days can be attributed to a number of factors. The decline happened under the rule of Nkosi Lobengula, and we'll come back to his fate in a bit because how it's taken by the Ndembele is very interesting. Anyway, so we know that the Ndembele had conquered their counterparts, including the Shona, right? Well, the Shona people were not ones to passively accept their fate. The Shona started to rebuild their defenses and their armies, getting back to their previous strength. They also took advantage of their proximity to the gold mines, and they traded in this plus ivory and other items, which led to wealth to buy better arms. 
And in AD 1879, the Shona revolt kicked into high gear and then Dembele, of course, tried to quell these, but were unsuccessful against a much revived Shona people who had also built alliances to fight off their opponents. In time, the Nembele kingdom fell. But what of his leader, Lobengula, I hear you ask, seeing as I mentioned him earlier, right? So the story goes. Lobengula had left before the final defeat was visited upon the city. The Nembeles believed that once a king was captured, then there is no chance of resurrecting that kingship in the future. So that being their case, the Nkosi had to leave rather than risk being captured by the enemy. So there are a number of theories as to what happened to Lobengula, because to be honest, I looked, but I couldn't find a definitive answer. The closest I got was that he crossed over the Zambezi into modern-day northern Zambia and that he just poof, disappeared. Not killed or dead. And even to this day, his grave is a secret. And this is a testament to the nature of the Nembele nation, that even in the conventional end of their kingdom, they truly are not defeated. So what was going on at this time, during the time of our kingdom? Well, in 1828, the Black War in Tasmania leads to the near extinction of the Tasmanian Aborigines. In 1853, the Crimean War between France, the United Kingdom, and the Ottoman Empire and Russia. In 1895, Taiwan is ceded to the Empire of Japan as a result of the First Sino-Japanese War. And in 1895, Ethiopia defeats Italy in the First Italo-Ethiopian War at the Battle of Adwa. So as we bring it home, when it comes to the origins of the Dembele, they are a classic example of how important it is to tell your own story. The writings of the European foreigners who encountered the Nembele and whom till today are seen as verifiable sources of information painted a certain picture of them, which was a bloodthirsty, callous and barbaric people. Also, that they were nothing but a military organization. I hope that this episode has broken down some of those tropes and you have seen a different side to the civilization, one that is not one-dimensional in any way, shape, or form. The Ndembele Kingdom is still today one of the more notable Southern African civilizations, and there's no lack of information about them out there by their descendants, so please be sure to go and do your own deeper research. To my Ndembele, I sincerely have to say again, I apologize for the mispronunciations. Please, please, please send in the correct ones for your African sister to learn and share with the Afri Watu. And now as we close, I wanted to use a quote from the historian Patissa Nyathi, who said, You have only defeated a people when you have captured their king. And this is why the Ndembele say the whites never defeated them, because they never captured Lobengula. And with that, until next time, Mubarikiwe!
Bienvenida.